As a heads up to our listeners, this episode centers on discussions of sexual assault and violence that may be uncomfortable for some. Please use your own discretion. Hello, and welcome to Joint States Policy Podcast. I'm Susan Elder, and I'm glad to have you here joining us today. This podcast features discussions among joint state staffers about various policy topics in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Today, we have Yvonne Hirsch with us, and Yvonne is our first second-time guest. So welcome, Yvonne. Thank you. Brian DeWalt, who is our co-host and sound engineer. Hi, Susan. Hey, Yvonne. And Glenn Pasowitz, our executive director here at Joint State. Glenn, could you give us some background about this topic? Thank you, Susan. House Resolution 642 was sponsored by Representative Gene McNeil from Lehigh County. The resolution directed the commission to conduct a staff study that focused on the existing mental health services in Pennsylvania for people who are traumatized by sexual assault or sexual violence. Included in the report are some recommendations for incremental changes to Pennsylvania statutes that could serve to improve the level and availability of care for people who need help. Thank you, Glenn. Yvonne, one of the things that the resolution asked Joint State to look at was the factors that deter victims from seeking mental health services. Can you give us a brief background into some of the barriers to accessing care? Certainly. People are very reluctant to seek mental health services for a number of reasons. To start out with, really from the minute the assault occurs is how people perceive that they've been treated. From the minute contact is made with anyone disclosing the sexual assault, the responsiveness of the people who are dealing with that person in terms of medical care, belief in their story, creating a relationship of trust, all are a factor in whether or not when that person is discharged, whether they will follow up. Part of it is provider attitudes. They're feeling that they their disclosures will be private, that they will be confidential, that the forensic examination itself is handled properly. There, there have been studies that have shown that a proper, compassionate, and complete forensic examination ultimately encourages people to follow up. There are a number of reasons that are a little harder to really legislatively address, and some of them are the fear of retaliation against yourself or a family member, cultural and religious beliefs that could impact how a survivor views her experience or his experience. And there's also family issues, if it's a close relative, if it's a significant other. And there's also concerns about if you're financially dependent on the perpetrator, how is that going to impact you? I think we're making a lot of progress in sexual harassment and assault in the workplace, but there's also concerns, especially in businesses where maybe that kind of reporting isn't encouraged that you could lose your job in in a different form of retaliation. Fear of police encounters, for whatever reason, it could be 
previous negative experience. It could be that the person was involved in other illegal activities at the time. Uh, they may have been involved in prostitution or human trafficking, and they're worried about criminal charges. And one of the things that has been an issue, especially among college students, has been an unwillingness to report because they were engaged in underage drinking. They were trying illicit substances. They were engaged in activities that would subject them to the school discipline code. And so they don't want to get in trouble with the school. So how to address this in the state's colleges and universities. So legislation was passed that specifically made exemptions that said, if you're reporting a sexual assault, there's immunity from school proceedings. And that immunity also extends to witnesses to encourage these students to come forward and seek help without the fear of having negative consequences to their overall educational plan. Thanks, Yvonne. So we've, we've talked about all the barriers to accessing care. Why is timeliness so important in this process? And what are some things people can do if they don't seek care right away? There are rape crisis centers in all 67 counties. There are 49 of them. They are coordinated by the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, and they provide referral services and can connect you to community services. Again, in the battle days, if you didn't report right away, you didn't have a case, but that's not the case now. It is the survivor's decision whether or not to report to law enforcement, receive medical services and counseling services without reporting to the police, without police involvement. If they choose not to do that, they can certainly talk to the crisis centers who will give them the kind of moral and community support that might encourage them to ultimately go to the police. The bigger problem, and again, not so easily solved, is the people who either hide what happened to them for decades, which we have seen with some of the child abuse cases in in different settings where um, respected authority figures sexually violated children in their care, and those cases have come to light 20, 30 years later. But there's also people who don't acknowledge, even to themselves, that they were raped, that they will demonstrate symptoms of mental health. Two of the biggest results psychologically of a sexual assault is post-traumatic stress disorder and depressive disorders. There is a strong association between rape and suicidality. But in, in those cases, those people may come to a mental health provider with symptoms of trauma-related problems, depression, but they haven't disclosed the sexual assault. And so then it's on the mental health provider to try to figure out what the cause of these psychological conditions are. And so one of the things that we have recommended in the report is that mental health providers have training on recognizing trauma and being able to identify 
the source of the trauma for people who have not acknowledged what happened to them. There are sometimes, there are people who, given the circumstances of what happened to them, really need a professional to say to them, this is what really happened to you, especially in the kind of case with a family member, a dating situation. There's the question of, did I really say no? Did I really communicate? Did I let this happen? And what is this called? Because I think a lot of people think rape is the mass gunman in the alley who grabs you and assaults you. And, and so those gray areas where it's not crystal clear what went on, there, there is that concern. The other concern is with people who first come in is knowing how to respond to that really heightens emotional sensitivity uh, of a victim coming in for help. So another of the recommendations is to make sure physicians, uh, residents receive training or continuing education in how to specifically deal with sexual assault survivors. And part of what you're talking about there is improving the quality of emergency room services, right? Absolutely, absolutely. There are multiple levels of first responders, but the higher levels of certification, part of their training is to respond to sexual violence. There's currently no centralized, coordinated, mandated training for people dealing with the trauma of a sexual assault for physicians, for counselors. There are programs available, but there's no standard established. And while certification is available from a number of entities, it's not required. So the person who provides the examination really prepares what in the vernacular is called a rape kit. It can be a person who has no experience and no training in in how to do that. And in such an intimate type of examination, the sensitivity and the compassion of the examiner significantly huge role in how the survivor responds and feels. And another aspect, having a support system, be it family, friends, a community-based provider, also makes a huge difference in whether or not a person will follow up on mental health care. There are a lot of issues with police response that's really beyond the parameters of the resolution, but there are, there are issues with how people feel the criminal justice system treats them down the line. So the first response by law enforcement may not help because part of it is, and I think it's not unreasonable to get the facts, who, what, where, when, and why. But when you start to get to the why, things get a little dicey. But then within the emergency room, and and this is probably really our most central recommendation, is that you have trained, compassionate nurse examiners who can go through the entire forensic process with the survivor. And by forensic, um, we're talking about evidence gathering. The idea is that you have a person who's been trained 
in both the psychology and the physical aspects of assisting a victim through, again, a very intimate, really violative kind of examination to collect evidence of the assault. The same programs where they've been instituted, they've been very successful. People who have participated in these exams, and the average exam takes like two and a half hours. So the people who have participated in it have reported positive interactions, and they've also been studies that have shown that having that forensic examination performed by a certified sexual assault nurse examiner, the acronym is SANE, increases the person's uh, likelihood to pursue a criminal case and to stay with it to the end of the criminal case. So so that kind of one-on-one personal treatment that really becomes a support service through the process has proved to be really successful. And one of the nice aspects of the same programs is they fit very neatly into telemedicine and into telehealth. That one of the the ways this can be done is that the nurse at the hospital where the person has presented themselves can hook up via telemedicine with a SANE and um, in the privacy of an examination room, they can go through the whole process. Um, Obviously it's only with, with the survivor's consent. Studies have found that Anywhere from 86% to 97% of people will consent to doing the telehealth forensic examination. And they've reported positive experiences with it. Pennsylvania was the second state in the country to receive federal funding to run a uh, sexual assault forensic examination program. And that's based out of Penn State. And they currently have eight hospitals in rural areas. With the exception of Dauphin County, they're mostly in the upper tier of the Commonwealth where nurse examiners at different facilities can use the telehealth program to conduct these examinations. There is a shortage of those nurses. One of the other recommendations we've made is that a Pennsylvania should join the uh, nurse licensure compact, which would allow nurses licensed in other states that have licensure comparable to Pennsylvania's to be able to perform telehealth services across state lines. Another thing we've recommended is that these telehealth options be maintained. During the pandemic, a number of telehealth options were implemented on a temporary basis in a number of areas, including mental health. And again, mental health is can be done without any kind of physical interaction. So it's been nice and useful to be able to conduct those kind of conversations via the internet, but those were temporary um, expansions. And so whether they remain, some of them came from the federal 
government, dealing with medical assistance and Medicare. Some came from the state level regarding licensure of healthcare providers. And and I think it's still under debate whether they're going to be made permanent, but some of them could be helpful for a situation like, like the same examinations. I will point out, I just discovered this morning that a bill has been introduced in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives to require same sexual assault nurse examiners to be either physically present or on call at Pennsylvania hospitals to set up our own SANE program. Too much in depth, again, in my humble opinion, is a, is a really big and good move to help sexual assault survivors get through those first traumatic hours and days with the sense that they are being supported from day one through the aftermath of all of this, that they have, they spend that time with the nurse, they develop that relationship, and that's going to help them down the line. In general, um, having a positive experience and getting that kind of support up front diminishes the likelihood of PTSD. Yvonne, The resolution asked joint state to identify sources of funding for mental health services, and they mention the Victims' Compensation Assistance Program. Could you give us a little bit of detail about that program and and would it help in situations such as these? Most of Pennsylvania's funding for victim assistance comes from federal grants. We get a lot of federal money on that. The Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency administers the money that is in the Victims' Compensation Program. It can help. One of the things that recent amendments did with that was to make provisions for reimbursement of counseling services if your insurance doesn't cover it. So you obtain the counseling and then you submit a claim for reimbursement. And one of the things that that we did propose, and a lot of the rape crisis centers already do it, is to require counseling providers wherever they're located to assist people in submitting um, the claims for reimbursement for counseling services, because it can be paid for out of the victim's funds. We also have... um, statutory provisions that say um, a a victim does not pay for the forensic examination, that they do not pay for the fees and costs associated with the criminal prosecution. So the fears of what it's going to cost, A, to get the medical treatment that you should get, including the forensic examination, and then the ability to get counseling reimbursed should not be a barrier. One of the proposals that that we've suggested in the educational realm of it is, is to have probably the Office of Victim Services, uh, Pennsylvania, prepare a directory that's available anywhere for the rape crisis centers, for the hospitals, for the police station, for private providers, for clinics, for anybody who would encounter people to have a directory 
that provides um, not only a list of 800 numbers where people can contact organizations and get referrals, but to also provide a list of those benefits that are available that very clearly says this is not going to cost you money, this is not going to cost you money, as well as a, a directory of of available service providers. And that's part of our response to one of the resolution directives to talk about posting of hotline numbers and how to get hotline numbers out. And there are really, in Pennsylvania, two broad-based hotline numbers that should be available to everybody. So there's RAIN, which is the Rape Abuse Incest Network, and then there is PCAR, which is the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. They both have 24-hour 800 numbers where an individual can call and get a referral to a local rape crisis center or other service providers to assist them. Yvonne, you mentioned the rape crisis centers in Pennsylvania. I want to direct listeners to our report. On the website, you can access a list that Yvonne has compiled, and it is rape crisis centers by county. There are a number of other 800 numbers and um, 24-hour hotlines that are out there, but they are population-specific. But the problem is if you publicize too many on a poster, it's, it's too overwhelming for people. So our suggestion is to have posters in all of those places that you see domestic violence posters, that you see human trafficking posters, that you also have the sexual violence hotlines posted for people. And then when you have your directories, you can put all of those specialized hotlines and organizations in the directory so that people would know that those are also available. But for the, for the first response to really be able to get your foot in the door, it just seemed to make sense to have that national hotline and that statewide hotline that could get you in the door and get you to where you needed to be with more specificity. The Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network otherwise known as RAIN, and is one of the largest nationwide programs. I was going to ask, what are the listings in a report contain? With regard to the 24-7 hotlines, um, the report contains a table, it's um, at page 26, that lists the number of organizations that are out there. We start with the two broad-based general ones, and then we include Uh, domestic violence, teen dating, victims of crime, the U.S. Department of Defense's hotline, the various queer hotlines that include specific ones for youth and seniors, as well as uh, youth suicide prevention. We also include the human trafficking and suicide prevention hotlines. And there are three large regional programs in Pennsylvania that if a person happens to live in those areas, they are good resources. And and that would be Safe Berks, which is in Berks County, and the Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence, 
what was formerly known as war, women organized against rape. So um, Philadelphia residents may be more familiar with that name because the name change occurred relatively recently. And then Pittsburgh has PAR, which is the Pittsburgh Action Against Rape. And all of those are 800 numbers that can assist people. With respect to the SANES, there are a number of programs in Pennsylvania that have been established over the years. If you look in the report, I think we listed 34 of them. And some of them are a matter of a couple of staff people who coordinate and assign it to uh, some bigger program that are doing interesting things to help with privacy and survivors' level of comfort while being in the hospital and being examined. Penn State Hershey has multiple suites that have been set aside just for sexual assault victims. UPMC Susquehanna Williamsport has had a program for over 20 years where they provide SANE services and they have dedicated rooms, programs that um, are there to specifically provide assistance to sexual assault victims. Yvonne, I was wondering if you could review the proposed changes to law recommended in the report. There were two areas we saw that we thought ought to be addressed. One of them is the role of resistance in determining whether or not a victim has consented to the assault. Pennsylvania has abolished that for the most part a long time ago, but we still have a provision in the law that says that lack of resistance can be introduced as evidence to support a claim that the victim consented to the assault. And looking at other states, looking at the history of how that has been addressed in the past, and looking at the federal definitions, there really shouldn't be a place for any kind of need to show to prove or disprove any kind of resistance in any aspect of the evidentiary chain. So we're suggesting that it just should not be admissible as evidence of consent, which is the last vestige of that whole historical process that said, if you don't fight back hard enough, then you really didn't resist. The other one deals with a sexual equity issue. We have statutes, um, some of them recent and uh, fairly recent amendments that allow a rape victim to terminate the parental rights of the father of a child conceived of rape without going through a lot of the procedural steps that are normally required in a non-sexual violence case. While that is an absolute good, it doesn't address the situation where a child is conceived of sexual abuse by a woman and the father of the child wants custody. And so the way the statute's written right now 
a woman who um, who sexually abuses a man can retain custody of the child and he he cannot take those shortcuts to terminate her parental rights. He would have to go through the entire process um, that is outlined. And it just seemed to us from a purely equitable situation that yes, those cases are gonna be rare. They should be treated equally when they do arise. So that was our, our second really legislative proposal. And then of course, um, a little more broadly, we didn't outline section numbers or anything like that, but to establish a SANE program to provide for the posting of notices of hotline numbers to create the directory of uh, services that are available to people. But those were two legal areas that were kind of on the periphery, but we thought that they were important to um, at least identify and suggest that maybe they could be cleaned up a little bit. Obviously, the, the biggest impetus is ways to make sure survivors get immediate and long-term mental health services, whether or not they go to the hospital. Now, the resolution spoke very specifically about when they leave the hospital. And so, um, again, we tried to address that more fully. We felt that having a SANE program would be go a long way to um, dealing with that issue. We didn't talk about sexual assault response teams in this conversation. I'll just throw them out there very quickly. What they are, are teams composed of law enforcement, healthcare providers, and advocates, and they respond to a sexual assault as a group, and they coordinate different branches of responsiveness to assist people through the process. Again, they are a recommended good practice. There aren't a lot of them in Pennsylvania right now that we could specifically identify. Um, In the report, we talked about the ones that we had um, self-reported to national organizations. And then we also kind of dug around in county programs trying to see who else had some sexual response teams. But I, in particular, I, I want to identify the, the pediatric SART team that is based at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. That has been a very successful program and it's a national model. Uh, to deal with child sexual abuse victims, to make sure they get the medical, mental health, counseling, all of that. And they've created a real continuum of care for children in that situation. And again, uh, we seem to focus a lot on adult victims, but as we all know, children are victims too. Thank you for highlighting that for us, Yvonne. It's time for us to wrap up our discussion here. So thank you all for joining us today in our conversation on Joint State's recently released report that focuses on improving the provision of mental health services to those who have experienced sexual assault or sexual violence. The music in our podcast is provided by Joseph McDade. If you're listening and you would like more information either about Joint State or this particular study, 
please refer to the link in our show notes. Thank you and have a good day.